so there is this kind of uh, unfortunate binary, and this isn't just unique to the vegan community or to the plant-based community by any means, but this um, kind of romanticism for, you know, the natural, right? Um, with, you know, the plant-based people will turn to a plant-based whole foods diet. Uh, there are other people who will turn to grass-fed meat and, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, organic milk and free-range eggs and that sort of thing. Um, the, this, this, this obstinate clinging to what is quote-unquote natural and the idea that all we need to do is rely on what is natural and then that'll solve all of our problems, right? And unfortunately, uh, nuanced thinking, which is what, you know, a scientific you know, mind demands is too much to ask of a heavily alienated population that feels lost and they don't know what to believe. So they cling to simple worldviews, right? I'm really excited to have Dr. Hannon on today. He's an associate professor uh, with the University of Winnipeg in the Department of Rhetoric, Writing and Communications. He's also uh, one of the people that was most intrinsic in my adoption of a plant-based lifestyle, which has been ridiculously positive for my health, my well-being, and plus it's opened me up to a whole, you know, new community of friends that I've added to my original community of friends and a lot of really great experiences, of course, with animals and stuff. If you follow me on social media, you'll see some of the work that I, I get to do as a volunteer with some of the organizations in Manitoba with animals and it really really fills my heart so thankfully because of people like dr hannon that are out there creating these communities and these places for people to learn and gather become literate in things like veganism um, it really does change lives this episode is really really interesting so it talks about you know the importance of community and how you know even though we're more connected through technology than we ever were before we're actually more alienated and isolated which feeds into sort of uncertainty which feeds into the consumption of media as you know fact regardless of where it came from or, or whatever so he's going to talk a little bit about you know vaccine hesitancy uh, science denialism and because even in the vegan community even though we trust the science about the nutrition of plant-based diets there is a sect of vegans that are not in agreement about medical science which is really interesting so he's going to talk about that a bit a little bit about his books about VegFest of course and he's going to talk a little bit about social media literacy and he says in there in in this podcast there's a part that I really like where he talks about you know we become we need to become literate in our consumption of news and media, just like we became literate in using the alphabet and literate in grammar. And then lawyers become legally literate and doctors become medically literate. There's economics literate. And the same thing needs to happen with news and media, including social media. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and stick around at the end where I will introduce who our speaker is for next Thursday.
Perfect. So hi, Jason. Welcome to the show. Um, really excited to have you on and all the things you're going to share tonight. So maybe we could just start off with you just introducing yourself a little bit. Tell us a little about, about you, what you do, and uh, maybe how long you have been vegan and what made you make the switch to a plant-based lifestyle. Sure. So my name is Jason. I am uh, associate professor in the Department of Rhetoric, Writing, and Communications at the University of Winnipeg. I've been teaching there for the last uh, eight years. Um, uh, my work mainly focuses on the intersection of communication and politics mm -hmm. um, and the fragmentation of uh, democracy um, through different competing uh you know politics right so basically what we now call the culture wars so that's what my my work primarily looks at um and so in addition to teaching at the university um and writing books for a living i also chair winnipeg veg fest um i co-founded veg fest in 2015 um and initially we just we had a a bit of a, uh, a non-start um, because uh, we, we didn't really know what we were doing. And then the following year, we um, made like a more kind of concerted, you know, effort and determination to make this happen. And so after a year of planning, we had this fantastic, fantastic, um, you know, first festival where we were expecting, maybe if we were lucky, we were hoping that we were going to get three, 400 people, uh, maybe, you know, our, our wildest expectations were, were that we were going to bring in maybe 700 people. And we brought in, according to the university, uh, between 2,500 and 3,000, right? So That's that amazing. was, yeah, that was, that was one pretty, too, you had some pretty amazing guest speakers, like who were some of the people you brought into an inaugural veg fest? Who were some of the people that you brought in? Like these are famous well-respected people. Yeah, we had Carol Adams, the author of The Sexual Politics of Meat, who is, she's just a giant in the uh, in the movement. Um, we had Mimi Kirk, uh, we had Leilani Munter. Uh, the race car driver for people that yeah. aren't sure who that is, yeah. Yeah, we had Krista Hidema from um, for then Mercy for Animals. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had who else? We have Dave Dave Nickars from uh, the Green Party, and he's also a veteran member of Sea Shepherd. Yes. Um, so yeah, it was a really really spectacular lineup. Really spectacular lineup. So you are vegan yourself as well, right? So what made you, on a personal level, what made you decide? How long have you been vegan, and what made you decide to go that way? So for me, it was the health route. Um, I didn't actually have much exposure to the horrors of factory farming before that. Um, I, I knew about, you know, the animals being pumped with, um, you know, hormones and, and antibiotics and so forth. Um, and, and up until that point, I had been one of those grass-fed people. Yep. You know, I want my grass-fed meat and, you know, uh, cage-free, you know, uh, chickens and that sort of thing. Like I, I was, I was one of those people, and I actually used to make fun of vegans. Um, I used to pick on them and, and troll them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, so, but I didn't, I didn't really have any kind of comprehension of 
just how how brutal uh, the animals were treated in that um, in that system. So so for me, it was a health route. Um, I had read some studies uh, about the you know relationship between animal foods and you know heart disease and cancer and so forth and. Um, just being the child of two biologists is the kind of thing that really sort of uh, sat with me, that really resonated with me. So I read into that as much as I could, and uh, and then yeah, I, I I made the switch. Nice, and and Anna, and how have you felt about it since then? And and you know, we always say sometimes the reasons we start are not the reasons we stay. Same thing. I started for health reasons, um, but I. <laughs> and I, it definitely did help with my health, but definitely the animals have become the priority more than anything. How about you? How do you feel now? And kind of what are the reasons you stick with it? Yeah. So initially I told myself that I would not be vegan. I would just be plant-based. <laughs> um, and then, Semantics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then that lasted for about a week. And then I'm like, no, fuck it. I'm vegan, right? <laughs> Um, just because I don't know, I don't know exactly how that entire shift happened, but, uh, and I, maybe, maybe there's something to do with, um, the consumption of vegetables and greater compassion. I have no idea, but after I made that switch, I started thinking more and more about animals. Um, and initially for me, it was purely a dietary thing. And then, as I said, after a week, I'm just like, okay, no, I'm cutting out, I'm cutting it all out. No more leather you know, none of it. I don't want to have anything more to do with any of it. Um, so, so yeah, the plant-based thing didn't, didn't last for very long. I just went solid, full-on hardcore vegan uh, after that. And then I became a fanatic. And what's interesting is we met around that time when you first started uh, VegFest way back when, a few years ago. And VegFest was largely one of the reasons that pushed me over the edge. So, when you thought about the creation of VegFest, kind of what was your goal behind it? What was, why did you feel it was so important to connect some sort of community um, in Winnipeg for vegans? Uh, well, I think, I think um, uh, we all need community. And, you know, one of the, uh, I think, uh, really unfortunate aspects of life in a modern uh, world, in a modern Western capitalist world is the, the loss of community, everyone feels so lonely and isolated um, and unable to connect. And this problem has been greatly, greatly exacerbated in the age of digital media, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and now with the pandemic, it's even worse. So, so the thing is when I moved here, when I moved here, um, the first thing I did was I attended a, you know, a couple of vegan events. I wanted to meet vegans and really kind of immerse myself in the community, but, um, it didn't seem like there was much of a community per se, uh, not much of a community uh, to speak of. Mm -hmm. uh, it seemed like there were lots and lots of vegans who were scattered here and there, but there was no real kind of, you know, umbrella, uh, you know, to bring everyone together. And, um, you know, after two or three years of living here, I realized there were many, 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 many vegans just spread out all over the place and everybody was just disconnected. So I thought it was really important that like it, was, it was time for us to create some sense of community. And the thing is, um, you know, uh, VegFest type events um, had by that time already um, 
existed in major cities all over North America, Europe, and elsewhere, right? And Winnipeg was one of the last not to have one of these events. Mm -hmm. And so, so I had seen that, you know, a couple of people had already tried to, um, you know, create or, or start uh, a VegFest uh, type event here in, um, in Winnipeg, and it never actually got off the ground. And so I thought, okay, this is going to be my, my goal. This is going to be my project. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want to make this happen. Uh, so I did everything I could to make sure that it would happen. And uh, initially, initially what I had in mind was something incredibly boring. Um, I wanted to do, because <laughs> I had never attended a veg fest before, right? <laughs> Which is um, even more wild. You created this big, massive event without any context really right. to this idea right 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 like the I'm, I'm an academic so the only kind of concept that i had in mind was just a conference so i was thinking of a conference with just panels all day long and you know maybe some catering and that would be it <laughs> and then somebody suggested well why don't we have vendors and why don't we have entertainment and so forth and then my idea of what this could be you know changed completely um and then what i thought was um this can't be all you know, uh, you know, work and no play. This has to be fun. Mm -hmm. I, and so, what I wanted to do was basically to create a big party. That's the vibe that I was going for. This has to be about um, a celebration of, you know, compassion for animals, um, the planet, and our health. So, on your resume now, you're tenured professor by day and event planner by evening, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although I haven't had a whole lot of time. I mean, I mean, the pandemic has really taken a toll, obviously, on um, our ability to to do event planning. But also, it's been really demoralizing because we have no idea what the future of VegFest will even be like. Um, we can talk about that more. But uh, yeah, I mean, up until the pandemic, um, professor by day, uh, you know, organizer by night. But um, pandemic has just upended all of that well yeah and it is really sad so when i said you know veg fest was just a large part of why i made this you know mm. the, the formal final switch the permanent switch it was it, it was a potluck before veg fest and all it was was because i really thought i'd just be eating bird seed the rest of my life and to see tables and tables of food and and none of it felt like deprivation. It was delicious. It was creative. It was, you know, the same comfort foods you would have at any family potluck, right? So just by opening people's minds, and it's, it's just food. It's not anything different. It is just food. Not yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those, those potlucks, I think we did about three of them, um, three years in a row, 2017, 18, and 19. And they were just they were just legendary um we would have you know 100 people show up to these potlucks and bring all kinds of really exquisite dishes and people put their heart and soul into these into these dishes um and it was impossible to be able to sample everything if you took a spoonful of everything onto your plate then you you still wouldn't be able to you know to 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 sample everything so it was yeah and, th and that's true because there was our friend Harry, who a lot of the vegans will know in the city, Harry, who moved to Vancouver, but he started bringing like charging plates and like cookie sheets to service <laughs> at 
out these potlucks because there was just so much and he's like I'm not missing out on anything I'm doing it all he just brought in these massive plates and off they went it was awesome so good yeah so we have this really great community and there's a lot of you know kumbaya and wonderful things happening in Winnipeg COVID has dampered that a lot and but you would think you know our population is quite small I mean what is the percentage of vegans in Canada now out of the population maybe two percent five percent if that yeah it's, it's pretty it's, it's really pretty small. small so you think we would really have this like we need to stick together in order to make a difference but there's a lot of uh divisiveness and i think you know the pandemic did that i think just in normal relationships never mind you know vegan you know community in a lot of communities we've seen this division but why, you know, vegans, we, we get into this, we know it's healthy for our bodies. We trust the science of the nutrition. We trust the climate science, right? That we're preventing or we're working towards, you know, preventing climate destruction. Um, and we know about animals and their biological needs. Um, so why, <laughs> why is something like intersectionality or tying veganism to other causes that are similar like climate action or you know oppression with any marginalized groups right and then science science versus I don't know what you would call it but what is this about why is there this crazy divide and these conflicting views in the community uh, well, I think there are a number of different reasons. One of them, probably one of the most important, has to do with uh, the, the primary reason that people are brought into the movement. So um, the, the, what, what, I, what I would call the, you know, the plant-based community. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of them had bought into the idea that um, a whole foods plant-based diet um, is not just you know good for you and healthy for you and so forth that it's basically you know a substitute for modern medicine mm -hmm. right um, and you know it, I think there uh, has developed a certain kind of um, uh, a belief, a faith in a plant-based diet that borders upon a kind of religious fanaticism, unfortunately. Sorry, sorry about that. One second, yeah. one second. <clears throat> I got this like tickled. I don't know what's going on. Anyways, okay, go on. Fanaticism. Yeah, um, this, this, this faith in the um, healing power of a plant-based diet that uh, I think verges into the realm of, of, you know, theology, right? Um, there is something to be said about, you know, a, a link between um, diet and health. Um, and, and yes, uh, you know, if you have heart disease, for example, uh, a plant-based diet is, is one of the best things that you can, you can, you can switch to, right? Um, but it's a leap to go from that to you know, I don't need a vaccine because I'm on a whole foods plant-based diet, right? And we saw this kind of, um, you know, uh, leap of logic, this sort of extremist logic when um, Dr. Eselstyn uh, got vaccinated and he posted a photo of himself 
um, with the vaccine, urging everyone to get the vaccine. And uh, there was this uproar among his followers claiming that he was a sellout and that, you know, he can no longer be trusted. And, you know, he had basically sold his soul to the devil and that sort of thing, right? Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, um, they were just unable to see the consistency in his thinking. He's never been, you know, a fundamentalist about plants. His whole thing has always been the scientific evidence. Um, there's evidence for a plant-based diet. There's evidence for vaccines. Um, whereas many of the, you know, you know, the, the members of the plant-based community, they don't think about um, a plant-based diet in those, um, you know, in those terms, in terms, you know, uh, strictly of the evidence. They came to see the diet in this sort of absolutist theological frame. And the consequence of that is that they uh, rejected the vaccine, even though it is, you know, very heavily supported by the science, right? So, so there is this kind of uh, unfortunate binary, and this isn't just unique to the vegan community or to the plant-based community by any means, but this um, kind of romanticism for, you know, the natural, right? Um, with, you know, the plant-based people will turn to a plant-based whole foods diet, uh, there are other people who will turn to grass-fed meat and you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, organic milk and free-range eggs and that sort of thing. Um, the, this 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 obstinate clinging to what is quote-unquote natural and the idea that all we need to do is rely on what is natural and then that'll solve all of our problems, right? And unfortunately, uh, nuanced thinking, which is what you know, a scientific you know, mind demands is too much to ask of a heavily alienated population that feels lost and they don't know what to believe. So they cling to simple worldviews, right? Absolutely. I kind of think of it this way. An analogy is, you know, eating plant-based food is healthy. It's sort of like you okay. put the best gasoline or electricity now into your car you oil it and lubricate it and you take care of it so it runs great but if there's a brick wall in the world in the road like covid you don't just drive right through it going i'll be just fine and not expect any damage that's not how this works right yes you're putting yourself in the best performance but also your body in a good place to use medicine wisely it it boggles my mind. My very first project in school, you know, it was grade four, was on vaccinations and the polio vaccine. And I, this is like a marvel of medical science. Like, don't you think people 200 years ago just wish they had vaccinations <laughs> and, you know, didn't have to rely on herbs and spices to try and feel better, right? When they died at the age of 40, you know, we, it's, it's crazy that we, we, celebrate the science and then now all of a sudden it's like oh no it's not acceptable to celebrate science anymore we all need to be uh, it's it's uh it's it's you're right they're very selective in when they will um you know acknowledge uh scientific evidence so in the case of a plant-based diet um they're more than happy to to talk about the evidence um, but then in the case of vaccines, this group that um, have, has come to be called Wugans, right? Yeah. Um, 
then they just disregard the evidence. Uh, and there's a whole theory for why this is. Um, I wrote a book about this, but this, this kind of um, selectiveness about what we regard as a kind of foundational premise, whether it's scientific evidence or nature or God or what have you, right? Um, you'll notice that there's a kind of um, arbitrariness into what people will uh, invoke as their foundational premise. And they're perfectly happy to switch as it suits them. And that, that arbitrariness, that inconsistency is just a kind of intrinsic feature of modern, uh, modern life. Well, and considering, you know, being plant-based or vegan is a, you know, known as a compassionate lifestyle, it doesn't, you know, why aren't human, we're all animals too, you would think that that compassion would extend to each other to protect each other, but it, are we, is it speciesism against ourselves or is once it's personally affecting our life that we're not ready to stay the course? Yeah, that's that's a really really good question. I mean, uh, so many so many um, friendships, um, family relations, professional relationships have been uh, completely torn apart um, in recent um, months, in recent weeks, even in recent days. Um, I've been hearing stories from friends who, you know, they've almost been uh, in you know physical altercations with uh, you know friends and family members uh, over disagreements about um, about vaccines. Um, it part of it has to do with the uncertainty of life under a pandemic. Yeah. And um, one of the things that you know uh, uh, psychologists and sociologists and others who um, you know, specialized in the study of conspiracy theories will tell you is that when um, we are kind of thrown into situations of uncertainty, especially prolonged uncertainty, we desperately gravitate towards some kind of a simple answer, yeah. right? So a lot of that is um, playing into this as well. Uh, nobody wants to feel uncertain. Uh, nobody wants to live with this gigantic question mark you know, um, floating in the air day after day after day, right? Um, we would much prefer solid, concrete, you know, ground or, and bedrock on which to stand. Um, and, you know, the nature of science is that whatever answers it can pr provide are always going to be provisional at best. And for some people, that's not enough. They need to have ultimate universal black and white truth with a capital T. And, um, you know, a scientific mind requires a certain kind of patience. It requires a certain kind of tolerance for uncertainty that um, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people just are not comfortable with. And so they will, they will gravitate towards whatever it is will give them that feeling of absolute certainty. Um, and they like the feeling of certainty, even if they don't necessarily have any basis for it. That's what's so problematic. So for someone that is bombarded with this messages, and of course, we know that whenever we type something into the search bar, it's going to just pop up more of what we were already looking for. You know, you get that bias and the algorithms and stuff. What's a, if you could give someone one tip, and I mean, it's not that simple 
to navigate social media and really determine, is this the rock I should be laying my beliefs on or not? What would you say to people when it comes to say social media or consuming news to do it more uh, healthily? As, as a you know, media studies professor, what I would like to see, what I would like to see um, are courses um, in media literacy, uh, media literacy, news literacy, social media literacy, um, beginning in um, uh, grade school. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I don't think it's the kind of thing that you can just sort of, you know, wait until you get to university and then maybe take one class on it or I don't know, maybe read a book on it or something like that. I think it, this is such a major part. Uh, I mean, we spend, you know, years and years and years developing an alphabetical literacy, a grammatical literacy, yep. but there are many, many types of literacies, right? Um, there's a medical literacy and economics literacy and political literacy. We need to be multi-literate in that respect. And we need to be literate when it comes to the consumption of, you know, media. Um, traditional as well as digital and new media, right? And so, so you know, I, I can do my best um, with my students in trying to um, cultivate this, you know, understanding and appreciation for the difference between truth um, and, can I swear, bullshit. Yeah, of course. Um, like, like it's, 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 it's important to be able to draw that distinction and to instill in them, you know, a, a love of truth, a kind of fierce um, and uncompromising, you know, respect uh, and reverence and admiration and search and quest for truth wherever it will lead you, right? Um, and, and not to put the conclusion before the argument, but to do the hard work of actually working through the arguments and then asking where 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 does the evidence take us, right? And that's a scientific way of thinking. Um, and that basic way of thinking is what leads us, you know, no matter what um, discipline we're in, we have to go with what does what does the evidence suggest, right? Rather than you know what kind of a I don't know an agenda or narrative do I want to push? That's the completely wrong-headed, backwards way of going about it, right? So so. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's too easy to say, look, trust these sources, don't trust those sources. There are articles that will kind of give you like a uh, a quick sort of you know snappy tutorial about you know how to be social media literate. Um, the same way that I don't think that it would be possible to become medically literate, um, you know, overnight. I don't think that it's possible to be social media literate overnight. I think it it takes. Um, an extended, you know, uh, time um, uh, in, in, you know, uh, being exposed to both the truth and falsehood and learning how to navigate, um, you know, that terrain and being able to tell the difference. That takes a lot of, a lot of practice and repeated exposure. So that's what I would say about that. It does. And if you're not familiar with the scientific process, um, and that, I mean, that's sort of the downfall in a way with all the transparency over COVID was people are seeing scientific method right in front of them, but not understanding the context. So when they see changes or tweaks or advancements, they think, oh, they didn't know what they're talking about to begin with. Oh, look, it's all changing. But really, if they're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, they're just as they gain new information through evidence and study, 
they tweak their course, right? It's like, just like a map. Every once in a while, you check to make sure you're on the right course to where you're going and you might have to take a detour, but it's, it's people blow these things out of context a little bit. I think they're, especially if it's not something they're familiar with and they don't understand the whole scientific method. Um, the other thing too, is it wasn't just with vaccinations and personal health. There was also a bit of divide over intersectionality with other causes of oppression around the world, which is, which again is kind of silly. I mean, we're these compassionate people supposedly with these compassionate lifestyles, but then there was a real divide in uh, activists, you know, say supporting Black Lives Matter, you know, that kind of thing where they went, no, no, it just takes away the focus from the animals. I'm only gonna focus on the animals where many of us were like, oppression's oppression and, you know, people first anyways, right? And we were alienating allies within our own communities where they have to, where they felt like they had to segregate even further away from us because we just weren't there for them. So why is it hard for some people to, to be intersectional? What do you think? Uh, again, I think it's uh, clinging to a rigidly narrow and black and white worldview, right? Where I think a lot of people, what they think veganism is, is just um, compassion for non-human animals, right? Um, and so they're perfectly happy focusing their intention on, you know, farm animals or, or you know, uh, wild animals and so forth. Um, but the idea of extending that same compassion towards um, not uh, towards human animals, um, I think, is uh, too nuanced for them, and it requires, you know, uh, a certain kind of patience and deliberation and the application of a core principle to new to novel circumstances, um, whether it's you know racism or homophobia or transphobia or you know, Islamophobia or what have you, that's, it just becomes too much for them to think about. Um, and and you know, being able to draw these kinds of connections, which is what intersectionality is all about, um, is, not, is not easy. Uh, and so you know, I, my, my suspicion is they feel a little bit too overwhelmed by that. And therefore they just kind of obstinately, dogmatically cling to, you know, animals only, you know, screw everything else, right? Um, and that's, 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 you know, again, a form of um, fanatical or fundamentalist reductive thinking that uh, doesn't help anyone. Um, and it's ultimately detrimental to the, uh, to the movement. For sure. Um, and is, oh, sorry, go on. Well, but there, there is one kind of unfortunate segment of the community. They're, they're um, thankfully in the minority, but uh, they have um, internalized a lot of libertarian right-wing um, thinking. Um, there are, unfortunately, again, they're a relative handful, um, but there are, you know, vegans who, um, you know, were and still are Trump supporters, for example, and who will deny climate change and who will believe in, you know, conspiracy theories and QAnon and so forth, right? And so they're in a, you know, a completely separate category and, uh, I have no hope for them. Well, I kind of wonder, like the people that struggle with 
you know, the, oh my gosh, I can't care about something else that's so overwhelming, just caring about the animals. I have empathy for that. I sort of understand that, right? I mean, they're not outright going, I don't support this. They're just going, I just can't focus on that because I will break my own heart. That's one thing. But I think like what you mentioned, I think some of those people, maybe it's they have this savior complex or superiority where I'm vegan, I'm perfect. And how dare you say I'm also a piece of a damaged system, right? Like systemic racism even exists within charitable organizations, right? And that can be hard, I think, with people, just like with, you know, trying to convert people to eat uh, plants. If you talk about their bee eating, they start to feel guilty because they are good people and they, it's, they cannot reconcile that suffering that they may be causing, not by their own hand. Okay, so what I'd like to, you know, as a communications expert professional, when we think about having some of these conversations with people that are resistant, right? Like they're outright combative or they're just like you mentioned anything and they're on edge or they're asking you questions, but you can't tell if they're honestly wanting to have a conversation or just prove you wrong. How do we know who within our bubbles should we have strong boundaries with, you know, is there a litmus test for people to know like, okay, this person is ready to have this conversation. Let's have a respectful conversation, discuss their viewpoints. And this person needs to be at arm's length because they're just not ready and they could be hurtful. That's, that's, that's really, really tough. Um, I, I mean, I, I can, I can just give you like my personal opinion. I'm not like a specialist in interpersonal community. Psychologist, like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess what I would say is, I mean, there are certain people that I would just would not want to work with. Um, so I would never want to work with someone who is just, you know, overtly, um, let's say racist, for example, um, you know, somebody who is against, you know, immigrants or something like that, or, you know, they, they are, uh, or somebody who is a transphobe, for example, I, I, I just don't want to work with somebody like that, right? Um, there are going to be other people who, you know, um, they're not necessarily on board with my politics, but who are still, you, you can still have a conversation with them, right? Um, and, and, and trying to figure out who that is, um, is difficult just because one of the things that we've discovered over the last year and a half is just how many of our, you know, friends and family members and colleagues and so forth um, are, you know, Either, either they don't take COVID seriously or they don't believe it or they don't believe in vaccines. Like a lot of this has been very, very surprising, right? So people that I trusted, people that I personally trusted um, who turned out to have extremely reactionary views when it comes to um, vaccines took me by surprise, right? So I don't know that there's necessarily a, um, an algorithm for determining you know, who you can have a conversation with and, and you know, uh, who it would be a waste of time to have that conversation with. I do know that, again, like if somebody is, let's say, you know, militantly pro-Trump or something like that, or they're kind of like lost in QAnon, or they are, you know, very strongly anti-vax, I wouldn't bother. Um, I wouldn't bother. In my experience, the people who tend to be very, you know, pro-Trump or, um, you know, like a diehard, 
conspiracy theorist, QAnon, you know, a believer or an anti-vaxxer. A lot of these people, from my observation, um, are are they're they're um, they're addicts. Um, they're people who I think there's some trauma. There's trauma in their past, and uh, one of the consequences of trauma is you know addictive behavior. And addiction doesn't isn't limited simply to substance use and abuse, right? You can be addicted to anything. You can be addicted to work. You can be addicted to screens and social media. I think conspiracy theories for a lot of people are a drug and it does something to the brain, right? And it it's empowering. It empowers people who feel powerless, right? There's no possibility of reasoning with somebody like that. So that's where I draw the line. Once I see these red flags, I'm just like, okay, I, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not even going to bother. I'm not, not going to waste my time. Yep. And unfortunately, like I was just listening to a neuroscience on a podcast uh, who was talking about addiction and there is a myth that addiction can only come from trauma or something, but even perfectly healthy people with perfect lives can become addicted because we're just in this hedonistic society where we can be right all the time because we can always find supporting evidence. We can find things that make us feel good. We're on this dopamine chase. We're constantly bombarded. So that's why even people, like you said, that you respected and were like, wow, they're so amazing. What the heck? Because if it is an addiction, that can even happen in normal, healthy people. That's how prone humans are to addiction and to dopamine, right? Not even just it doesn't always have to come from trauma. So it's crazy. Um, so you wrote some books, one about the, you know, rhetoric of, you know, the agriculture community, because we do see that a lot, you know, we're grass fed beef. I just saw, I was saying to my mom the other day, she posted something about uh, this vet in Manitoba that has a TV show. And I'm like, don't do that. No, no, no. Because she's showing how much, look how much we care about our animals. And she shows these ladies in a field with pigs checking their hearts and like petting them and that looks nothing like an actual hog farm right there they don't live that that is a hobby farm those are pets that's that's not keep and the headline was we keep your food safe and cared for and um <laughs> I forgot where I was going with that anyways um so you wrote a book specifically about that but you also wrote a book about this um the Trumpism and, and that kind of stuff too. Would you like to share a little bit about your books? Uh, yeah, which one? Either, start with both. Okay, well, sure, I'll start with, um, I'll start with the Trump book since uh, you just mentioned it. Um, so ba basically it, it's, it's, not, it's not about Trump per se, mm -hmm. it's, it's about um, what's called the, uh, the culture war, or the culture wars in um, uh, North America, Europe and so forth, right? Um, why we politicize everything, why vaccines came to be politicized, straws, bathrooms, and so forth, um, to the point where um, this isn't some sort of, you know, minor uh, difference of principle, right? Um, you know, we're seeing stories in the States about violence um, at school board meetings over the, you know, uh, over, over masks. Uh, in, in school campuses, right? Um, we've seen healthcare workers attacked uh, because, you know, they, they um, well, I'm not sure why they were attacked, but, 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 but they, were, they were perceived to be part of some sort of, you know, conspiracy in the early days of COVID. Um, you know, we've seen um, uh, actual real violence over, you know, disagreements that shouldn't, 
first of all, I, I don't think should exist. I, I don't I don't think that vaccine should ever have been politicized. I don't think it should, there should ever have um, you know arisen a you know a left right divide over vaccines. Um, but, you know, but unfortunately, one of the consequences of um, uh, an individualist society is these these kinds of battles start to become our identity, right? Um, and so it's like, you know, are you for vaccines or are you against vaccines, right? And it's kind of like asking, you know, well, you know, are you are you are you Christian or are you Muslim? You know what I mean? Are you an atheist or a believer, right? It's 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 that kind of thing. Like these are these are the new religions, right? Um, and so my book is sort of uh, a history of why that happened. And what I do is I actually trace a connection following, the, the book is um, uh, a kind of commentary, an extended commentary on the, um, the, uh, the, the, the philosopher um, and political theorist, Alistair McIntyre, um, and, and his kind of critique of the modern world, which draws this connection between the wars of religion in the past and our um, battles today, right? Um, so, so I try to sort of explain why that's happening and then look at how these kinds of battles affect our language, our speech, the way we reason with one another in the public sphere and how we all can get kind of sucked into this, this trap of never ending, you know, arguing with one another, right? And how we can get out of it. So that's what that book is about. Very cool. You know, it's funny in my area, there's a conservative that's running for re-election and he sent out a survey for all of us in the mail. And it said, you know, as a resident of the, you know, St. James Assiniboia area in our beautiful little city, Winnipeg, which of these uh, affect you the most? And it was like healthcare, education, and then one option was the Communist Party of China. And I just burst out laughing and uh, like, oh my, I was like, are you, yeah, that's totally on my radar. I'm like, no, that doesn't, like, it's just, it's just fear mongering. And it was funny because I was with my mom later that evening, we're watching the news and after the news was over, I'm like, what? Nothing about the Communist Party of China? Not fake news, right? Like, I was just joking around about it. <laughs> it's sure. just so ridiculous. So ridiculous. So tell us a little bit about, what's the name of that book? Uh, it's called Ethics Under Capital and it's subtitled um, McIntyre, Communication and the Culture Wars. Perfect, I'll put it in the show notes as well. So if people wanna check it out, they can order it. And okay. then you also have another book about um, the agriculture industries. Would you like to share a little bit about that one? Sure, so that one is an edited volume, a collection of essays called uh, Meat Splaining. And it's subtitled The Animal Agriculture Industry and the Rhetoric of Denial. And so that was a book that I came up with the idea for that maybe about five years ago, and then just kind of sat on it for a couple of years and then um, decided that I would move forward with it as a, as a book project. And basically uh, what it does is it looks at the way that the animal agriculture industry, the meat industry um, is, you know, kind of they're feeling the threat um the there, there are three different kinds of critiques of the industry there's the environmental critique there's the health critique um and then there's the ethical critique right um this industry is responsible for just just 
you know, horrific destruction of the natural, uh, you know, environment of deforestation, you know, um, river pollution, lake pollution, ocean pollution, ocean dead zones. Um, it's just, it's just, it's awful. Um, and then on top of that, and, and it, it's a, you know, a driver of climate change. And then, you know, um, the, the, you know, just this, this, the flooding of our, you know, daily diet with, you know, animal products has created, a, you know, a very real health hazard, right? There's a reason why, um, you know, heart disease is the number one killer in North America, right? This has everything to do with the rampant consumption of animal products. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously the, the, you know, the horrific abuse of, um, of, of animals on these farms and in uh, abattoirs and so forth, right? So, so they're very sensitive to the growing awareness of just how much of a menace this industry is. Um, and so there's been this organized um, public relations pushback to try to, you know, preserve, defend and preserve its image as, you know, basically, you know, old McDonald's farm, that kind of thing. Um, and we love animals, we love the planet. And, um, you know, we, you know, our products are good for you, that sort of thing. So my book is um, a look at, at those talking points and how that propaganda works. Um, and so I have like a very, very impressive collection of contributors from all over the world who have individually done a very fascinating case studies um, about different aspects of this phenomenon that I coined meatsplaining. Is there one quick story in particular that really, really, were like, wow, that is, and like, was there one that really sticks out in your mind? Well, the one that I'm most uh, kind of focused on right now is the way that um, the beef industry has tried to reinvent itself um, as the uh, savior of our economy, right? Yeah. Um, so we know that, um, you know, uh, uh, of, of all the different animal foods, beef is by far, by far the worst because of all the deforestation, right? Um, and so now there's this movement, um, this regenerative grazing movement or holistic grazing movement that um, has this, very extreme and completely untenable claim that um, regenerative grazing um, can reverse climate change to pre-industrial levels, right? So basically, if you want to save the planet, eat more grass-fed beef, <laughs> you know, that's what we'll all be, we'll all be better off, right? Um, I love I love the beef's website in Manitoba. It says something about beef are nature's upcyclers. They take grass and turn it into nutrition for people. I was like, yeah, that's a reach. It's 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 a reach uh, in part because um, these are animals that are not even native to the Americas. They were forcibly brought here by Europeans, subjected to an alien colonial model of agriculture and ranching was a driver of ethnic cleansing across the Americas. And what we're seeing in Brazil right now, where ranching is being used to basically burn um, the Amazon to the ground and drive um, indigenous you know, tribes that have been inhabiting the Amazon for literally millennia upon millennia, that what we're seeing right there, which is a total human rights violation, I think is just fully genocidal, that already happened in North America. We've yeah. just completely forgotten it. And they're treating it as, as if, you know, 
this is the natural way to live and you know you know take care of the earth and so forth and it's absolutely it's absolutely not it's just one um insidious myth that unfortunately a lot of people have come to believe including many vegans who think that you know regenerative grazing is the way to go there are some vegans going back to yeah it's crazy anyways but it all comes back to the beginning like before you went vegan and I did the same thing too. I looked for those humane stickers, you know, the humane society certified humane meat, you know, I can see why that would be palatable to the public because it does ease the conscience a little bit, right? Like at least I'm doing this responsibly and I care about the animals. So, I mean, it's smart marketing. There's no doubt about it. Even if many of us understand that it's definitely a reach, but it does remind me of cigarette ads back in the 80s you know the 70s and 80s when they started to release you know there was a lot of but you know this doctor recommends this label of cigarettes right so it'll be the same thing with meat for sure so uh before we wrap up i just want to know so coming up for and the pandemic has everybody in a you know that uncertainty what's uh, what can we expect from veg fest either as a veg fest or other events or things coming up in 2022 well we will most definitely bring back our um, uh, Vegan Week Food Festival in January. We're going to start the planning for that uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, so that was uh, uh, something we started last year, turned out to be incredibly successful. So we're going to expand it uh, in 2022. Um, we're going to do the same thing with our dessert festival, Sugar Rush. Um, so that'll happen in late spring. And hopefully, hopefully we'll bring back some form of the main festival in September of 2022. Um, it may be indoors, it may be outdoors. We really don't know. Um, it's been, it's been uh, tough to have to cancel two years in a row. And I feel that, uh, I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of the community, they feel um, a longing um, for this special space where, everybody kind of, you know, is sort of on the same planet, so to speak, when it comes to their basic values. And they really, really miss that, that sense of community. So we're hoping to bring that back in some form, probably a compromised form in, uh, in 2022. But the restaurant uh, events that you did, the Vegan Week and the Sugar Rush, if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about just real quick how that worked because it really did bring people together people were excited people were talking about it it was all over social media in winnipeg it was it was humongous so just tell everybody a little bit how you did it very safely and with the ability to do it in the pandemic sure we recruited uh for um uh, vegan week we recruited about i would say 40 restaurants and every single participating restaurant had a special featured vegan dish and some of these restaurants um, are vegan by default a lot of them were um, not vegan restaurants but they were still happily you know uh, willing um, to feature uh, you know a special vegan dish just for this festival and uh, so we have this just gigantic you know menu a selection of 40 different items and um, it's one week where we encourage everyone to try as many of these dishes as they can and then at the end of it all to vote for their favorite and um 
the 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 again the excitement and the enthusiasm on the part of the uh, the restaurants to participate in this festival was really quite amazing. We had restaurants, vegan and non-vegan, that were selling out of these items. It was it's a, an incredible way to support um, the local restaurant industry and in Winnipeg has an incredible um, uh, food scene here. But then also we uh, took the, um, the fees and we donated them to one of the local uh, animal sanctuaries, mm -hmm. the, you know, the good place for um, uh, Vegan Week and then um, Little Red Barn for Sugar Rush. So, so this has allowed us to donate thousands and thousands of dollars to local uh, animal sanctuaries. So this really is win-win for everyone. Um, it's, a, it's a win for the restaurants. It's a win for you know, us as you know, people who like to eat good food. And then it's a win for, um, for the animals because we're helping to support the sanctuaries. And so that can bring a big smile to everyone's faces. And it did. And really, that's what everybody needs most, I think, during this pandemic is just something to look forward to and something to enjoy. So exactly. thank you so much for your time, Jason. And uh, maybe we'll have a post-election wrap up. Get your thoughts on the current politics in Canada. We can do that in the fall. That would be fun. Um, but yeah, I will put everything in the show notes if you would like to order uh, Dr. Hannon's books. Um, and as well, if you are a restaurant that would like to participate in future events, we can also put the email and information in for VegFest as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Hannon. And I hope all of you, thank you for listening. I hope that you feel a little more enlightened and a little bit more um, keen to learn how to become uh, media literate. I think that's really exciting. I really, really enjoyed that about, you know, that fear of uncertainty, which we talked about, I believe in our first podcast uh, with Josh Lins as well. There is that fear of uncertainty and it can drive us to cling to simple, simple answers where sometimes that scientific method is not a simple process. Um, next week, I am really, really happy and honored to have my friend Lynn Morissette come on. Lynn is the uh, founder and owner of Little Tree Hugger Boutique in Winnipeg, which just has the very best personal care products uh, that are very environmentally friendly, which includes refills. So she does, uh, she has refill stations so that you can buy uh, lotions and things in bulk and bring them in for refill. But one of the really great things I love about Lynn is that she supports other local businesses in Winnipeg that are doing good things. So she has almost like, it's almost like a consignment where uh, she locally curates uh, different vendors within the city that have natural products or really cool things that are, you know, Manitoba or local. And then she will sell them in her shop as well which is really great and Lynn is uh, just a bundle of sunshine she's just a really wonderful person so I really hope uh, that you will tune in next Thursday because an episode drops every single Thursday uh, to listen to her share a little bit about you know what got her into the natural uh, body and personal care product and what it takes as a woman uh, to succeed in business and how to continue succeeding especially through a pandemic so have a great, great evening or day whenever you're listening to this and we'll catch you next Thursday.